Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. According to the infallible gospel of an unsourced IMDb comment, Waiting for Guffman is Meryl Streep's favorite movie. So check. That's a fact. But actually, I bet it probably is. That somehow seems right. It is certainly one of my favorite movies, and as you'll hear, I have a long history with this film where I watched it twice a year for probably 15 years. It plays so nicely down the line of appealing to a mainstream audience, but also giving just a little extra to anybody that's ever done a play. Hey! I'm Matt Gorley, and this is I Was There Too, the show where I talk to people that were there too, and present in the great scenes of cinema history. Today we're talking about a trilogy of Christopher Guest films that did more for me in terms of understanding comedy as anything else out there. Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and A Mighty Wind. My guest is Deborah Thaker, as pleasant a guest as you can possibly get. But before we begin the show, I would like to make a correction. Two episodes ago, I mistakenly said that Rebecca de Mornay was in Pulp Fiction, when of course I meant Patricia Arquette. Then one episode ago, I didn't mean Patricia Arquette, I actually meant her sister, so I'm finally going to clear this up. It's not Rebecca de Mornay, it's not Patricia Arquette, it's Lonnie Arquette. It's understandable, there are a lot of Arquettes. There's Alexis, David, Tiny, Mouse Guy Arquette, and Butchie. Okay, that's all of them except for the one they keep in the attic. Stick around after the interview for a new segment where I answer your listener mail. And now, let's begin this show. The films, Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and A Mighty Wind, The Year, 1996, 2000, and 2003. The roles, Gwen Fabin Blunt, Winky's Party Guest, and Naomi Steinblum. The actor, Deborah Thaker. Deb Thaker, the last time we met, you didn't have a head. It's, that's correct. It's nice to see you put back yeah, together. <laughs> that's correct. I was beheaded, and you were investigating my unfortunate death. Yeah, and the, to lay out the scene, we were in what was essentially a pilot presentation for Adult Swim, where you yeah. you sat behind a desk with a prosthetic head on the desk, right? 
Yes. And and what eventually became a CG trick where your head was missing. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. And there was still blood spurting out of my neck. That's right. And I had a hamburger half eaten and you guys were putting the burger up to my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> how, how many times have you done work where you've been disembodied in some way? Jeez, you know what? I'm trying to think. I think a few times. I've really? Had, yeah, I think I've had prosthetic stuff a few times. Well, you were also a serial killer on Bones at one yeah, point, right? Yeah, I was a serial killer oh. on Bones, so totally miscast. And I knew David Boreanos for years, and he couldn't stop laughing in the interrogation scenes. He was like, his shoulders were shaking. He couldn't get through it. It was really epic miscasting. Did you bring any comedy to that role, or was it intended to be played straightforward? No, it was intended to be played straightforward, and I was basically bringing young Chinese these girls into the country, sure. then killing them and using their bones for rituals. <laughs> <laughs> and it was called the Boneless Bride in the River, and they found somebody's skin floating in the river, which led them to me. Oh, boy. Were, yeah. you, were you living in the wilderness or, or <laughs> no? I was running, what was it? I was running like a dating service for Asian ladies to meet American men. But in reality, I was just wanted their bones. We're going to get into the Christopher Guest films, but what did you draw on to play a character like that? Nothing, because <laughs> I just stunk. If you really want to get a good laugh, look at that episode. It was like, no wonder. No. I was so bad because it just, you'd never, I just don't have the face or the depth of a serial no killer. No way. That's not, yeah. well, yeah, you don't yeah. have the face of a serial killer. No. I, I thought you meant the talent, but you... <laughs> you have the talent to play one and I think to be one. Yeah. yeah. See, I could if I really put my intention there, if I tried. Okay. So Waiting for Guffman, I have to tell you, one of my favorite all-time movies. Um, Were you a theater geek? I was. In fact, this See? goes along with that. So I teach and have taught college theater for, I guess, since 2000. Oh, wow. And every semester I show them that movie. And every time Gwen Fabin Blunt comes on and says, I know how the Kennedys feel, <laughs> always gets such a huge laugh. Tell us about what was your approach to that character as much as you can. Well, you know what was really funny? Chris, uh, before we started the film, he said, you're going to be the sort of woman who wears pantyhose with open-toed sandals. And I was like, oh, that, I see. That told you everything you needed yeah, to know. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I'm on I'm on board. And then uh, uh, while we were shooting in Austin, Texas, he let us come in and watch a lot of the dailies. So people would congregate and look at the dailies. And I started to figure out I was going to get cut. I just knew it. So I borrowed the old Elaine May rule, if you can't go forward, go back. And I made myself the last surviving descendant of Blaine Fabin. That's but, how that happened. Because I was going to ask you about sneaky. the hyphenate name where you're, you're – this that is was a my detail I name. love. Oh, you're kidding. It was my, be my best friend's name. I waited for a year for her to go to the movie theater so she could see her name. And <laughs> I just thought, oh, it'll be genius. She'll, she'll be sitting in the dark. Then she'll see the placard on the table with her name on it and the credits – Anyway, and it, it was she did she laughed out loud, and I know that Mike Hitchcock did the same thing. He had a friend named Steve, and he used his name in the movie, and then kind of waited till he saw <laughs> to see if he noticed. So, how did you come to be involved with this movie in the first place? Well, I um, I was a Second City alumni, and in 1990, there was a Second City here in California on Santa Monica Boulevard in the actual old opera house where they filmed Young Frankenstein, which is now condos. I went by and it's condos. I was like, oh, oh no. 
brutal because it was a beautiful old space, the Mayfair. The op, the scene where he presents Frankenstein and they yeah. do putting on the Ritz. Putting on the Ritz. Yeah, yeah. And then while I was in the Second City cast there, Peter Boyle dropped in one night and we improvised a scene that will remain immortalized in memory for the rest of my life. He was so great. Dan Aykroyd was there that night yeah. too. Oh my God. We got the suggestion of Alcatraz. So Dan Aykroyd played uh, a guard who was making money on the side by doing after-hours tours. And Peter Boyle was the birdman of Alcatraz, only his birds had all died, so he was using his fingers. And I was his groupie that came on every tour because I was hopelessly in love with him and knew it would never last. It was great. And, and the audience later, I met people from the audience who said, oh, that was scripted. I saw that on Saturday Night Live. And I was like, no, you didn't. That was just great, great, magical improv that night. Now, you were, if I'm correct, the only woman to work at all the Second Cities, is at that right? At one point, that was true. You know, now there's there's other satellite Second Cities, but I, I was traded between casts. When I was in Toronto, I went down to Chicago and worked there, and then I came down and worked in Los Angeles when there was a Second City here, and then I went to Ireland with George Went and Tim Kazarinski oh. and did um, the best of Second City there for the Cat's Laugh Festival. Hmm. And that's what led you eventually to the guest movies? Was working. No, the Chris came to a benefit. In 1990, I was in the um, Second City here in L.A. I was brought in as a ringer to help them write a good show. Andrea Martin had been in the cast, and she dropped out. She was like she didn't like the response that the show she was in got, and it was really hard to build an audience, and it was a bit of a grind. So everybody was like, bring Deb in. She'll be great. So I came in to write that show, and the funny thing was we were spending long days at the theater. Like we'd spend all day at the theater writing, coming up with stuff. Then we'd do the show at night. Then we'd do an improv set after it. And um, we had a benefit scheduled before the actual opening of the show I helped write, which was called Lord of the Medflies. We had a benefit <laughs> for malathion spraying. And, um, Wait, what? this was early 90s? Yeah, this was like, it was April 1990. I remember it as I remember because I lived here at the time and the medfly spraying, yeah, the, med the malathion. Remember when you had to close your windows? Yeah, and you had and, to move your car. You yeah. couldn't leave your car out. This yeah. was this weird Southern California yep. period of time that is just – Terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Whatever you do, don't breathe in. Close right. your windows. You're, basically, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there was a benefit, and uh, it was for Meloth against Melathion spraying. And I told people, oh, but to back that up a little bit, that whole day I was hanging around the theater, and we didn't go home. I was staying at Ryan Stiles' house at that time, and. We didn't go home, and I said, you know what? Let's rent some videos up the street. Let's have a Christopher Guestival. And he was like, great idea. So he rented Spinal Tap and Sticky Fingers, watched them all day. Then that night was the benefit, and I knew something was up because everybody was doing a completely different show. Everybody was either show-dogging or super nervous or uh. looking out at the audience a lot, and I thought, I don't want to know what's going on or who's out there. Something's up. And at the end, I went out to take suggestions, and the lights came up, and I saw Steve Martin, Billy Crystal, Danny DeVito, um, everybody. Shit. And there was someone just kind of staring at me like this, and I went, oh, that's Christopher Guest. And I thought, oh, no, it's you just think that because you've been watching him all day. And then the next day, I got a message to come and read for a show called Jody Hartman, Jody Hartman, which was about Mary Hartman's uh Daughter grown That's up. where I recognized it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was written by Chris Guest, and it was um, 
Uh, Mary Kay Place was going to direct it, and um, I thought Ryan did it as a gag. <laughs> I was convinced that he did it, and he was totally, like, pranking me, so I didn't show up. That is a unique project. Yeah, yeah. but it actually was Christopher Guest <laughs> and Norman Lear. And then they called me in for a, another meeting, and I went in and met them, and I don't really know what became of that project. I, I knew that I wasn't going to be available for it because – I had a limited visa and couldn't, but that's how I met him. And, and you didn't burn a bridge by not showing up the first time at all? I think they believed me when I said, why? I thought it was a joke. Oh, that's kind of brilliant, though, because they would believe you and think that yeah, was funny. Yeah, like who would blow you? Norman Lear and Christopher Gestoff? Only me. But I also <laughs> didn't drive. And um, so when I got there on the next time they set up the meeting, I had like socks and runners on because I had walked like five miles or something, got off the bus at the wrong place and ended up – Anyway, and so I missed seeing Chris in the room, and he was coming out, and he said, oh, gee, you know, I thought you were really great. We're going to work together because I just think you're great. So every once in a while, I'd get a call, like I'd be back in Toronto in the middle of winter, and I'd get a call for a sh- I got a call for a show of Morton and Hayes that he did with Kevin Pollack. It was like a 1940s black and white, re- you know, those two reelers with yeah. uh, about a comedy uh, team and Kevin Pollock was one of the team, and the part that they wanted me for, I was unavailable, and they ended up casting Jennifer Jason Lee. And I think that show didn't get a pickup. I think it may have run for one season, or possibly just the pilot. It was pretty brilliant. So then I was in LA, and I got a weird phone call. Um, I got my green card because I in Canada I starred in a series called Maniac Mansion. That's the Lucas produced. Yeah, film, George right? and George yeah. Lucas helped me get my green card. Okay, now he wrote another question. Yeah, for later he wrote me a great let me, letter. Let me write that down. All right, keep going. Oh yeah, no. So I um, I got nominated for a Cable Emmy as Best Actress. Right. I lost out to Wendy Malick. Oh. But I was able to get my green card, and I asked George Lucas if he'd help me out, and he said, yeah, absolutely, and he wrote me the most incredible letter. So as I'm sitting at the federal building, I see a ballerina from the National Ballet walking out dejected. She's like, you're not going to get it. It just, you know, I didn't get Yeah, I'm not going to. It's just not going to happen. I was meeting all these athletes and everybody I knew from Canada going, yeah, good luck with that. It's probably not going to happen. And, I, and so I reconciled myself to the fact, no, I'm not going to get this. And I walked into this guy's office <laughs> and I started laughing because around the top of his bookshelves, he had in the original boxes, Han Solo, no. Princess Leia, every Star Wars action figure ever made. <laughs> Man, Lucas wields a powerful... Does he ever? And I waited ever. as the guy was opening my file. I was waiting for him to get to that letter. And then when he did, I thought he was having an epileptic seizure. <laughs> and I got my green card. Like I got approved that day. Never underestimate nerd power. It's, right. It's what's ruling Hollywood these it's days. It's everywhere. Yeah. The old adage that the Jews run, the media is no longer true. It's the nerds now. <laughs> it is. Okay. So then you're, you're living officially in the States. Yeah. And um, working intermittently with guests? Uh, no. At this point, I was applying on the day that I applied to work at Starbucks because uh, <laughs> I just couldn't get arrested. Um, I'd just come from a Starbucks interview and they were like, I'm sorry, you just don't have what it takes to be a barista. Do you have a letter from Lucas? We can maybe get you a job. Yeah, here. maybe. And then I got a phone call to meet Chris Guest and Eugene Levy in his office. And um, I had just start on Eugene's series that he created with George Lucas, Maniac Mansion, for three or four years. And they never asked me really anything. They just talked to me. I never read anything. 
but he knew they were both familiar with my work so so um it was such a pleasant fun and then going to Austin we shot in Austin Texas yeah. um was fantastic it was so much fun so that first conversation with guest was pleasant and fun because in total honesty from what i hear is that he can be a little cranky and a little stern or stoic you sometimes you know what it is it's he's an he's english and they're very reserved. Because, yeah, isn't he titled as well? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's Lord Hayden Guest. He's very reserved and quiet. But the first time I made him laugh like a little girl, I knew I was in. <laughs> and um, he's got a great sense of humor. And he always – he's a fan of talent. He likes – he's started so many – he's like the godfather. He's started so many people's careers in comedy. And if he sees something he likes – um, he'll be the first person to recommend you or, but yeah, he was a bit intimidating at first. I didn't know what to think, but as I got to know him, I call him Pappy. Why? I, Cause he's just, he's the big daddy <laughs> and, um, he's such a funny, he makes me laugh all the time and everybody, I could tell I just did a commercial with him. We're doing a campaign for PetSmart. My friend Maria is in one of those. Oh, Maria yeah, Blasucci. Mar- yes, yeah, right. she's yeah. terrific. Yeah, yeah. I knew her dad. Her dad yeah. was a writer on SCTV. That's right, yeah. And just to bring it full circle, Please. because a good improviser always reincorporates, her mother, Beth Blasucci, produced that benefit for Malathion. That world is too small. That's crazy. It is. It's almost incestuous because there's just – especially with the Canadian angle of it because it's such a small – you know, show business in Canada is so small. Everybody's interrelated. We all know each other or are related in some way. Yeah, same or, with England too. It seems like yeah. there's a small pool of very talented people that get yeah. a lot of the work. And when I was coming up in Canada, the time I came up – um, the touring company in the second at Second City was the Kids in the Hall, and then Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles were around, and and you worked pretty extensively with the Kids in the Hall, right? Yeah, I did. I I uh, did a, a lot of their shows in the Rivoli, and um, when um, Mark McKinney and Bruce McCullough were hired by Saturday Night Live as writers. Um, I did their parts for a year <laughs> and I never got any laughs. Well, I can't believe that. Yeah, because Bruce McCullough had a character, you know, the cabbage head guy. Yeah. Yeah. That guy did that guy in the audience would just like look at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> What's going but on? But that's got to be tough. It's one thing to take a role, but to take an actual character like that yeah. has an like, established voice and yeah. that sort of thing. Man, yeah, my hat's off to you. Yeah, you know, I used – my only claim to fame through Second City was that I was supposed to be a great – I could pick up people's stuff really quickly. And so I was understudying. I mean, I stepped into uh, Andrea Martin's parts in Second City in L.A. in 1990 and just tanked because I did – do you remember from SCTV, Plurini Scleroso? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so all I heard was – the women in the front row going, is she supposed to be? What's wrong with her? <laughs> and then she did share in the turn back time with that dental floss thing that goes right up like a G-string. And I, you know, she's 90 pounds, five feet tall. I'm five foot ten. So I had wide-wheeled corduroy pants and a turtleneck. And I was trying to do share um, with Chris Barnes. And so was, you did the more 60s, 70s? Yeah, share? I don't know. I think people <laughs> didn't know what it was. And then um, it was called Sonian Shares. And and Cher gets into like um, it becomes a martial arts thing with the Japanese head of Sony. I misjudged my kick and totally leveled him. He collapsed face first on the stage, the guy that I was in the scene with, and there was no curtains to close. There was just kind of an awkward like until they brought the lights down. They realized he wasn't getting up and I had kicked him right in the – 
oh. package, and he was out. It was just the worst. Speaking of curtains, and then we'll get back to waiting for Guffman, but yeah. I read somewhere once that uh, when you were performing with kids in the hall, they forced you out in front of the curtains, and then Scott Thompson stapled, stapled the curtains shut. The curtains shut you on just my last had show. To be out there and yeah, perform. and you know what? Guess what? I have no fear now. I bet, yeah. Because it was a huge audience. We were in Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, we were touring. Um, there must have been like, I don't know, 500 people. And I hated being on stage alone. I just didn't want to have to ever do that. Sure. And they just decided they would take care of that. <laughs> and they did. You know what? Eventually it became funny. Like it went from being a rabbit in the high beams to the audience really feeling empathy for me and then just <laughs> laughing and how long would you say you were out there? In eternity, and yet <laughs> it must have been like quite a while. It felt like forever. I would say a good five or ten minutes just by myself oh, with nothing. Kidding. like just. And then I tried to get off stage, and I couldn't. And Gary Jones was the other guy who stapled the curtains. He's on Stargate SG-1 now. But, um, yeah, they completely – hung me out to dry and what was terrifying it's like was the actor's nightmare personified and then you just go okay now what you have no choice yeah yeah sink or swim eventually i swam and then it was a case of after that i had no fear i could do anything on stage and never be afraid because the worst had already happened i had died in front of 500 people (laughs) all right so we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about waiting for government Okay. All right. It's Deb Faker. What was the process like on Waiting for Guffman? I know so much of it was improvised, but some of it was outlined. And like you said, you got to kind of control your fate by... Well, because I was watching the dailies and I was watching Chris watching the dailies going, "Mm, I think that's going to go. I better make myself in some way essential because I found out later... Harry Shearer was the barber in the town, and he was completely cut. I had no idea. And Joe Flaherty was a guy who came in and got a haircut, and they had all this. And you would think, oh, well, that's never going to get cut. But it's a merciless process. And no one's safe, huh? Nobody's safe. Yeah, because um, Bob Odenkirk and David yeah, Cross are Bob in it Odenkirk barely. And barely. Yeah. And yet they're fantastic. It's just um, – the scene has to get served and things evolve as they're doing it. And he shoots, you know, 65 hours of film and cuts it down to an hour and a half. So you go through the five stages of, you know, anger, grief, <laughs> denial. It's like uh, Christopher Guest and Terrence Malick films are famous for having right? huge threads with known actors that can completely disappear. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. Uh, so was there much that you shot story-wise that didn't make the final cut? I remember that I was um, – I can't – like, see, the problem with recalling all that stuff is I can't remember what stuff happened and what (laughs) stuff we thought happened because so much was going on. I do remember that there was one sort of storyline that I had been running for Miss Miss Fabin year after year after year and winning, and they finally had to tell me I couldn't be in the competition anymore. And I had a rival gift shop across the street. The gift shop that Corky has at the end of the movie that's supposed to be in New York was originally in Blaine. And they changed – the ending that I really liked and that I thought was hilarious that I have on tape somewhere at home was – when he ended up with Mike Hitchcock, who That's was right. the That's, town yeah, pharmacist, I read about that. Yeah. and they're living in a loft in New York, and they both are all 
you know, Mike now has loosened up his shirt and he's got a turtleneck under his shirt with the white collar, the pinstripe shirt with the white collar, and he's wearing a vest and they're all happy. And and I thought that was the most logical conclusion, but I don't know why that ended up evolving. And then they took that chunk of Chris in his store and put that at the end, and that was supposed to be set in New York, but it actually was in Blaine. And I decided I had the opposing gift shop across the street where I would sell ceramic panthers and stuff like that, and that he was my main competition. So I had a lot of I had a lot of problems with him because, you know, it was a small town and he was stepping on my territory. The thing that I love about your characters, and and two, at least two out of three of the first Christopher Guest movies, you cry so believably and are so weepy. We'll get to that in a second in a mighty win, but your your crying is so real. Were those real tears? Funny you should ask, Matt. <laughs> yes, in fact, they were. And you know what I discovered? If you drink water and you don't take a toilet break, it has to come out somewhere. So you'll either go into complete kidney failure or cry your eyes out. You urinated out your eyes? Pretty much. Pretty much. I just was like, because it went on forever. Some of those scenes took, you know, I was there for weeks, what uh-huh. looks like a few minutes of film. And what happened in A Mighty Wind, I said to Chris, can I have so much makeup that I look like a melting cake when I cry so that if I'm crying, like my whole face is? He said, oh, great idea. But what happened was I got something in the tear duct in my eye and I had to get it cut open and surgically scraped. So I start off the movie with really heavy coal-rimmed, you know, eye makeup, and then suddenly halfway through, I look like an Amish woman sort of sitting sideways so you can't see that I have a huge um, – I just had my eye cut open. Um, and when I went to the ophthalmologist, she was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I get a lot of people from cats, a lot of the dancers from cats. Because of the heat, the makeup will go into the tear duct. Oh. And I was like, what? So oh. this is like, don't try that at home. Don't cry wearing a lot of eye makeup for, <laughs> for prolonged periods. How much control do you have over, like you say, like the makeup? I noticed your outfits too in A Mighty Wind. Your shawl game and your scarf game is really on target. I well, mean, you know what? That was all Dorinda Wood. He, she's a brilliant costumer, just brilliant. And he, um, But he, Chris and Eugene would go, how do you want your character to look or what ideas do you have? Or they – nobody else does that on a movie. Nobody else gives you ownership where you can decide how you're going to look and, you know, what's going to happen. I inherited the wig because I think initially Linda Cash was cast in that part and then was unavailable. So they did some shifting around. So the little mushroom Dorothy Hamill yeah. wig was made for her. Yeah. But it sort of worked. Yeah. Yeah. Not – in uh, Waiting for Government and A Mighty Wind, you end the film watching these performances. How much of that did you actually sit and watch? The um, folk performance is actually shot oh, yeah. as a performance, right? It was shot as a performance at the Orpheum Theater, and um, it was. It took a long time. I know that when uh, we were doing Waiting for Government and we were sitting in the audience, <laughs> we'd phone each other in the middle of the night and leave messages like, Still boom from the parlor to the pool room, click and hang up because it became earworms that you couldn't get because you'd hear it over and over and over. And it just was like, oh, well, you, I've watched it at least twice a year for 15 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so the thing that I remember too is reading that 
um, Nothing Ever Happens in Mars yeah. is really the second song to Nothing Ever Happens in Blame, yeah. which is a similar melody, I think. So yeah. it's kind of like it, they cut that for time. They and, cut that, you know, if – I don't know if this is on the DVD, but I do know I was there when they shot it. They did this one – Song where the, Parker, the flood no, this bulging yeah. river, yeah, this bulging this river, brave and beautiful stream, yeah, and it's a beautiful melody. It's a beautiful melody, but the funniest part is when Parker goes, "Mama, tell me about the," and she goes, "Hush, child," <laughs> exactly, Hush. and then goes into the song, and it's hilarious. That's I don't know, there. and you know what they cut that I really missed in a mighty wind. They did uh, the the folksmen do start me up. The Stones start oh, me up. Kidding. Yeah, uh. start me up, start me up, start me <laughs> start up. Start me up. Well, they do a whole um, brilliant, folky version of Start Me Up, and it ends on She Makes a Dead Man Come, 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 <laughs> and three part harmony. And I couldn't even get through it watching it. And for some reason, I don't know if it was song rights or what happened, but it was, um, it was cut. How long a night was that when you're sitting watching that show? I think that was over a week or two. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was okay. a long time because they had to shoot the reactions. They had to shoot behind the audience. They had to shoot what was on stage, and they had to shoot the audience reacting to what was on stage. So from many angles. So it was quite time-consuming. Oh. Yeah. And uh, Best in Show, you played the friend of Catherine O'Hara. And yeah, I pretty much ended up – you could see the back of my butt waving goodbye to her in one scene. And then it got nominated for a Golden Globe, and I was like, oh, geez. Was there more that you had shot for that character? I'm trying to remember. I think there was, uh, but I, I blocked it all out. It was, tra- <laughs> it was traumatic because you kind of – you have an idea in your head that when you're doing it, you know what it's like when you're improvising. You commit to it totally, so that's the story, and then it's not there. Yeah. Or there's stuff that they pick out. That you think, I wonder why they picked that out. Yeah, you remember something else being strong. Completely different. And, yeah. yeah. I have a completely different version of all of those movies in my head. Yeah, God. and so does everybody else. I I sat at the – we went to the Toronto Film Festival for, for your consideration. And I sat next to Fred who was seeing the movie for the first time. And I could tell he was all – a bit upset by whatever was missing or whatever wasn't there or what should have been there. I could tell that he was seeing it for the first time because everybody gets all bent out of shape. Yeah. Because you've got this version. So everybody commits so much that the story in your head never matches what they've picked in the end. And it's a weird, it takes a while to accept it. I can't explain it. It's so strange. I can imagine. Yeah. And how different that is from scripted. I mean, you can still lose scenes and scripted scenes, but it's not quite the same thing. You would have such a heavy investment in it, having created that character. Yep. What a special thing for you, though, to be in all of these Christopher Guest yeah. movies. Yeah. And, and you know what the best part was? Having lunch with everybody. Because they're all so literate and smart. You know, Bob Balaban is a brilliant Guy. I was going to ask you. Yeah, he produced uh, Gosford Park, which won an Oscar uh, for, I think it was Best Adapted Screenplay. Julian Fellows wrote that mm. screenplay, but Bob produced it. And um, such an interesting guy. Like, they're all so interesting. And 
Catherine and Eugene have such a long history. She was 19 years old. She was the coat check girl at Second City. And that's a question I have actually. When they kiss as Mitch and Mickey, in there's a so wind, much history behind it. Yeah. It feels that way, character-wise, and it feels that way yeah. in reality. And were you there when that happened, or was that just close-ups? No, we. I was there when it happened, and it made me cry every time. For it, real, because I thought it made me tear up a little bit yeah. watching it again for this interview. And then the crazy thing was that uh, Catherine and I were working on Lemony Snicket which we both really didn't end up being in much, but we worked on it for quite a while. And she got the word that she was going to be performing on the Oscars because that song was written by Michael McKeon and yeah. his wife, Annette O'Toole, That's right, yeah. and they got an Oscar nomination. So suddenly Catherine and Eugene were going to be performing live on the Oscars. So she had her auto harp, and every <laughs> second she got, she was like practicing, practicing, practicing. I read about that, actually, that Michael McKean and Annette O'Toole we're in a long car trip from Vancouver to, to yeah. L.A., and the planes were grounded after 9-11, and so they had this time to drive and yeah, write. and write songs. Yeah. And, and Annette has a beautiful singing voice and plays the mandolin, and they sing, perform together. And I saw them at the House of Blues, and they were fantastic. If you ever get a chance or you hear their performing – they, their voices are so lovely together. And she was doing, what was that Superman series? Smallville? Smallville, yeah. yeah. So she was doing Smallville. So she had an apartment up there and they would go back and forth. That's right. And she was she was in one of the original Supermans too. As yeah. Lying. yeah. Yeah. She has a long history with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So a few more things just about you. Uh, your father was a mayor and mortician. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. And you grew up in Esther Hazy. Is that how you yeah. pronounce that? In Potash Saskatchewan? capital of the world. That's, yeah. Fertilizer essentially, yeah, right? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And also the stuff that they put on ice to break up the ice. Oh. You know, when you, so you don't, you okay. know, to get rid of the ice on your stairs and. And what was, what was it like growing up there and having a dad that was a mortician pretty and Pretty epic. Mayor. Pretty that epic. That sounds like a Christopher Guest character. I know. It should be. Well, you know, my dad and my brother wrote a book about his life. It's called Grave Matters. And my brother and I have toyed with trying to adapt it as a series because he was the Marin mortician in this little village surrounded by Indian reservations in Canada in the 60s and 70s. And the stories that he has are just Fantastic. And the funny thing is, I think I get my sense of humor from my dad. <laughs> he has the greatest gallows sense of humor because <laughs> you have to. to. Yeah. You have to. You see so much horrifying tragedy that if you didn't turn it into humor or have a great sense of humor, you'd be crying all the time. So I really think that I inherited that from my dad. He's a really, really funny guy. Yeah. Did you ever come across any of the bodies and stuff? When, oh, yeah. He, he... I was over in the funeral home all the time. It was next door to our house. And <laughs> I. the crazy thing was it was my girl to the power of a thousand because – Everybody who died was either my school friend, my teacher, oh. or it was a small town, so you knew everybody. So I really want to turn those stories into something. I'd love to do it as a storytelling tour because he has so many fantastic stories. And he and my brother Kent, who's a, uh, a musician, he's a singer-songwriter, and he's also a writer, yeah, put it all in as a memoir that um, got really good reviews in Canada. But I think it would be a great series Unfortunately, when we were first going to pitch it as a series, uh, Six Feet Under was on the air that I also guested on. It was like you yeah. kind of there isn't really t room for two shows with the similar. That's a talented family. You're also a visual artist, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I was in art school, and I had a professor. I was a bit of a Doogie Hauser. I was 16 in university, just turning 16. And I went into art school, and I had a professor who just ripped me to shreds. He'd go, "The world doesn't need another Norman Rockwell." 
And then I have a very similar experience. Did you? This is crazy because I went to school just briefly to study art as well. And my professor told me I was seduced by the line. You always want to illustrate. Look for oh. the shadows and forms. And Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Then you, I've got a movie for you to watch. Have you ever seen a Daniel Close movie, Art School Confidential? No. Uh-uh. Oh, my God. <laughs> you got to rent it because that was my story except for the serial killing part. And um, – the professor, John Malkovich, plays the pretentious professor who's always talking about his triangle series. And in the end of the movie, you see his paintings. They're just triangles. <laughs> no, they're just triangles. And I had a similar thing. I had a professor that just ripped me to shreds, then cut. And so I went into, th- I switched majors after a year or two and did a degree in theater. And um, that's what happened to me. <laughs> did you? That's yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Isn't it? I think it's, you know, they're extensions of the same thing. Yeah. It's funny, but yeah. And, yeah, he, he couldn't paint his way out of a paper bag. They were just blobs. And I thought, I allowed this guy to tyrannize me and completely destroy me, but I wouldn't have had a career in comedy. So yeah, yeah. who knew, right? Yeah. So my last question is, George Lucas, what was he like just for the people out there that will kill me if I don't ask? Okay, this is so – you're going to be like, how could you possibly do that? Every time he came to the studio to visit – I was on my way out the other door. I kept all my theatrical commitments while I shot. So sometimes I'd shoot a 12-hour day and then go do eight shows a week or a play at night. And every time – so I never met – we only ever spoke on the phone. And I phoned him and thanked him and said, oh, my gosh. And he still wrote that letter for you. That's wonderful. I got my green card right away thanks to you. And he went, well, you'll have to come up to the ranch. And I went, we can wrestle up some cattle. (laughs) And there was like long silence. Long, long, interminable silence. And I never did go up there. It's not that kind of ranch, Yeah, Deb. yeah. I'm we like – make Star Wars at this ranch. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. But he took the time to do that. And I was laughing because Catherine O'Hara, one year at a Christmas party, she was saying, yeah, Steven Spielberg sponsored me. It took three years. And I was like, really? My Lucas Beecher Spielberg because I got it the same day. Because I couldn't believe it. I was like, but what are the odds I would get the biggest Star Wars yeah. fanatic in the world – but the lesson there is you have to have an A-list director sponsor you to get into the damn country. Yeah, you know, I don't know how it works because I came in under um, – well, I think we all probably did uh, – of the Canadians, um, an alien of extraordinary ability. But Is I, that what they call it? Yeah. That sounds like a Spielberg movie right there. Right? It should be if it isn't. And I basically came in under that category and I think I got it largely for improv because there were so many actors and actresses I know of great renown in my own country who didn't get in. Hmm. So I don't know. I guess I guess everybody wants to come to America. It really still is the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Deb, thank you so much for talking with me about all of this. I'm oh, thanks for having me, Matt. You yeah, we're right back at you. Thank you. Well, my thanks to Deb Faker, who was just wonderful, and Chuck Fonville, our friend that put us in touch. Thank you, Chuck. And now it's time for a brand new segment uh, called... I was there, Q. And A. Stupid jingle. Hello and welcome to I Was There, Q and A. I'm getting so increasingly embarrassed about the puns I'm forced to find for these extra segments. But if you'll go on this journey with me, we'll do it together and uh, share the blame. I'm going to answer some questions that people have been nice enough to send in about the show, about my feelings from some of the things on the show, how it works, and all that. Here we go. 
Many people ask this question, but we'll go with Tyler Karstens from Twitter. Which movie do you wish that you were there to, even as a fly on the wall? That's easy. It would have to be Casino Royale from 2006, just to be, I think, in that poker scene. Because A, what a great scene. And B, it probably took forever to shoot and probably would have been horribly boring in some sense but wonderfully thrilling and exciting in another sense. And because you're there so long, you would have no choice but to mingle with everybody at some given time. The only conclusion would be that Daniel Craig and I would be best of friends to this day. He'd probably be here with me right now recording this podcast. And it's amazing how just the fact that I wasn't in that scene means that we aren't the best friends. Hmm. That's Good Internet on Twitter asks, if you could switch roles with a past guest, who would it be? I had to think about this one for a little bit, and uh, I initially narrowed it down to playing Jason in Friday the 13th would be really fun. Being present at the staircase shootout in The Untouchables would be amazing, even if I was a woman with the baby carriage. Maybe especially if I was the woman with the baby carriage. Being present in a Star Wars movie would be good. And it has to come down to switching out with Paul Rustin and Glorious Bastards or Rico Ross or Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens. This is such a tough call. Clearly, I want to be involved in some sort of military squad. I think I'm going to have to go with Jeanette Goldstein, who played Vasquez in Aliens, because it satisfies the love I have for being part of a cinematic movie platoon or squad, men and women on a mission kind of thing. But it's also got a sci-fi element plus the xenomorph alien Giger aspect that I love so much. Plus, I used to play aliens a lot when I was a kid and often played Vasquez. And uh, to be able to lug around that smart gun on that steady cam rig and wear a bandana and just to be that built. Yeah, all right, that settles it. It's Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens. That's the part I'm taking. Adam Antman from Twitter at Inmost Light, asks, other than squibs, what practical movie effect do you most want to experience? So if you aren't a regular listener to the podcast, I would love to someday be squibbed, which is when you have those uh, electronically ignited movie blood packs like your shot uh, strapped to you, and preferably it just riddled like a machine gun strafing or something. Other than that, uh, I've always been very obsessed with quicksand, specifically movie quicksand, because as I later learned in my research, real quicksand is not all that exciting and doesn't really exist, and you are more likely to die of exposure from being trapped in quicksand than you are from sinking. It's Even that is rare. But I talk about it at great length on a great podcast by Joseph Scrimshaw called Obsessed, where we spend a fair amount of time talking about me looking for quicksand as a kid, but also the best quicksand in movies for my money, which has a cinematic level to it that's a little heightened that I love. And you should check that out if you're interested in such a specific, ridiculous topic. Steven underscore Schaefer from Twitter asks, who would you like to have on the show that just isn't possible, deceased or otherwise? Hmm. Early on when I was preparing this show, I thought about the toll booth operator that accepts Sonny Corleone's change in The Godfather right when he gets riddled with, uh, well, squibs. Uh, I would love to have him on, but he's deceased. I would love to have someone who was one of the prisoners in The Great Escape. There's probably someone there still alive. And 
I think Porkins from Star Wars would be the quintessential I was there to guest, but he has since departed. Scott PG Mack on Twitter asks two questions. First, I'm going to get you drunk, get you love drunk off my humps, Joe Camel. What's your favorite smoking moment in a movie? I actually know this one. When I was in junior high, I was obsessed with the movie Platoon. I just loved Vietnam movies in general. Um, but I saw that, I think, eight times in the theater when I was in junior high. My mom would drop me off and let me watch it. She was very supportive of my cinematic habits and also my journey to create squibs and blow things up in the backyard. Thank you, Mom. But there's a scene in there where Ted McGinley is trying to convince Tom Berenger to let him go home from Vietnam. And he's kind of about to cry because he sort of feels like his death is imminent. And it turns out it was. But the whole time he's doing this, he has a cigarette dangling from his lip, like stuck there with dried saliva, as he very earnestly and kind of sympathetically, even though he's not the most sympathetic character, tries to convince the Sergeant Barnes to get him to go home. And there's just this cigarette flipping on his mouth while he does it, which I thought made for a good moment. Scott P.G. Mack also asks, let's get dickered. Your favorite drunk acting moment in cinema. I'm sensing a theme with you, Scott. Easy as well. Catherine O'Hara in Waiting for Guffman when they're at the Chinese restaurant. She plays drunk like no one else ever. It's so good. Worth watching the movie for every other reason, but for that scene alone when she's drunk and she and Fred Willard are at dinner with Eugene Levy and his wife. It's really, really funny. Quist Allen, Q-V-I-S-T-A-L-L-E-N on Twitter asks, If Margot was human, which acting role in the history of cinema would you like to see her in? Let me grab her right now. Oh, Margot, what role would you like to play? Can you hear the purring? So the obvious choice would be Jabba the Hutt, or what's his wife's name, Gordola the Hutt? Why do I know that? How do I know his wife's name is Gordola? Uh, she's here in my arms, but... I wasn't kidding when I said Jason Voorhees kind of reminds me of Margot because she's just got this sympathetic, magnetic, but also dangerous look in her eyes. <laughs> uh, she thinks we are her pets. But I'm going to have to go with one of the mean girls from the movie Mean Girls. But one of the supporting ones that's not a fully developed character, one that just comes in for comic relief, but also just like the... The one with the dominant trait, like she's always eating or something. I don't know. Marta, what do you think about that? <laughs> that, I swear to God, there was no editing. <laughs> that one, so oh, God. She's the fattest thing that has ever, ever not been able to get her on her own four feet very easily. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope to do this again on a future episode as we wrap up. <laughs> their Q and a stupid jingle. That's it, everyone. This episode is done. We did it again together. If you can connect me with a guest that would be perfect for I Was There Too, please email me at IWasThereToPod at gmail.com. Almost all of the episode's guests are found that way now, which has been such a great help. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. This last run has just come to me out of the blue from you, the listener heads. I'm going to make that name stick. You can find me at Matt Gorley on Twitter and Instagram. You can find yourself there as well, I bet. And if you do, stop by and say hi. And if you can, 
Give this podcast a big old five-star kiss rating on iTunes that'll help keep it in the charts and in your hearts. This is Mac Orley signing off and talking longer than I should have. Pop. Pop? Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.